Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Subscriptions and single tickets are available now at lectures.org. In this episode, we hear from Lucy Brock Broido, who joined us in April 2015 at Chihuly Garden and Glass for a reading of her poetry. Prior to Brock Broido's reading, Caleb Bagger Corthell, then a student at Roosevelt High School with Sal's Writers in the Schools program, reads his poem, Asparagus. Rebecca Hoogs, Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, introduces Brock Broido, and the evening closes with the two in conversation. At the time of Brock Broido's visit, she had produced four collections of poetry, A Hunger, The Master Letters, Trouble in Mind, and Stay Illusion, a finalist for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Sadly, Lucy Brock Broido passed away in March of 2018, but her poems, described by Rebecca Hoogs as arboretums of lush and exotic language, continue to bloom Here's Lucy Brock Broido, followed by a conversation with Rebecca Hoogs. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is Rebecca Hoogs, and I'm the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and I'm delighted to welcome you to a reading by Lucy Brock Broido. This series and tonight's event would not be possible without the support of our many, many partners. Our huge thanks go to our presenting sponsor, the Seattle Times, our series sponsor, Charles and Barbara Wright, our organizational sponsors, all of whom are listed in the program, and special thanks for significant organizational support go to For Culture, Amazon.com, Arts Fund, Boeing, Elizabeth George Foundation, the Harvest Foundation, Medina Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Norcliffe Foundation, Nordstrom, Petunia Foundation, the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, and the Washington State Arts Commission. Thanks to our media sponsors, Crab Creek Review, Poetry Northwest, City Arts, King FM, KUOW, KPLU, Seattle Met, and The Stranger. Thanks to Chihuly Gardening Glass for this illuminating space. And thanks to our bookstore's partner, Open Books. Next Tuesday night, Open Books will celebrate 20 years of more than meeting our poetry needs. On Tuesday night, there's a party at the Good Shepherd Center at 7 p.m., which I encourage you all to attend. And of course, please embarrass them with attention tonight. Speaking of partners, I wanted to share an event that Copper Canyon Press is hosting next Monday night. This free event will feature Jeffrey Brown, PBS NewsHour anchor and Copper, Pre Copper Canyon Press poet, reading his, from his new collection, The News. You can go to Copper, Canyon, Copper Canyon's website to RSVP, and again, this is a free event, so I, I highly encourage you to have, attend. 
And finally, I hope you will join us in just two weeks for the final event of this year's poetry series, a talk by National Book Award-winning poet Terence Hayes. He will give a lecture which uses the poet Etheridge Knight as a kind of springboard, and I know it will be an inspiring evening. And this event will be on Tuesday, May 5th. The format for this evening will be a reading by Lucy Brock Broido, followed by a Q&A. If you have a question, please write it on the card in your program and pass it to an usher. After the event, Lucy's signature will be available at the book signing table. To begin our event, I am delighted to present a Writers in the Schools student from Roosevelt High School. Caleb Becker Corthel is a 10th grader as Roosevelt in Reed von Pohl's class, where, he's, where he has been working with wits writer Emily Bedard. Please join me in warmly welcoming Caleb Becker Corthel. Hello. Asparagus. The first week of K, I sit in the corner while the others play, shunned, all because I like asparagus. Sam likes lollipops, so do I. Lizzie likes chocolate, and I do too. And Danny enjoys pop rocks, and I love how they sizzle. But I'm weird, because nobody else likes asparagus. My school ID says first grade. They've all become friends. The girls all have cooties, and the boys smell funny. And I don't count as either, because I like asparagus. Nobody else does, except Miss Dee Dee, but nobody else. And the next day, everyone went to Jimmy's birthday party. But there was no asparagus there, because asparagus is weird. And no one likes asparagus. So while everyone talks about the bouncy house, I read in the corner, where I pretend not to hear. We in our lunch groups sit in our grades. Third grade sit by the stage. We're learning how not to exclude, and the others let me play with them, but only when I ask, when the teacher is around, and when we play, they never smile. So I read my book instead, while they smile and play, and laugh at me, who likes asparagus. Fifth grade graduation grows near. I smile at the thought, and then suddenly unwind. All my new friends are going to different schools, and I'm alone, again. But that's okay, and I'm sure people will like asparagus. It doesn't matter what food you like here. Asparagus is less than acceptable, but, not, but okay nonetheless. But other things aren't in the sixth grade, like having more than one mom, because that's not okay, because that makes them gay which makes you gay, even if you're not, because I'm not gay, but they still treat you like an embodiment of a plague, because gay is weird, like asparagus. And while others play, and others punch and run, and shoot and talk and laugh, you're weird, and by law, you sit alone in the library and read and wonder what would happen if anyone would care, if people would be better for it, if the world would be a pl better place if asparagus went away. High school is a silhouette on a five-month-long road. And I start to wonder if asparagus is okay. If asparagus is immature, will anyone else like asparagus? But I don't worry much because I made it grilled, cut, 
chopped and spiced, with doubt, rinsed with regret, despair, hacked with hatred, ridicule, but it wasn't all bad. Because asparagus can be a food for hope and joy and happiness, and every other little thing that makes me smile, because asparagus isn't a dish to be served alone. And now I'm here, where I'm where I want to be, unintimidated by the rest of the world, because I'm a little different. I'm more than a little weird, and I'm happy about it. And I may not fit in, but I'd rather be weird, because weird is good, just like asparagus. Thank you, Caleb. I am delighted to introduce Lucy Brock Broido. You can say that I am made of light to introduce a poet whose very name sings light like a bird call, whose name recalls the story of Saint Lucy who carried her eyes before her in a golden dish, an image both grotesque and beautiful an image whose contrasts carry those of Miss Brock Broido's luminously dark work. The author of four books of poetry, her most recent last year's State Illusion, was a finalist for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Portland poet David Biasfield, writing in the citation for the latter award, praised her poetry as a, quote, dreamy stereoscope and Dan Chasen in The New Yorker lauded her frolicsome gravity. These are poems to read falling in or out of sleep while you're in the liminal space between dreams and wakeful reasonhood. They are filled with arboretums of lush and exotic language and depict bestiaries of imagery both newly discovered and utterly ancient. They are poems for the edges of the brain, where, senses, where sense starts to tatter, and what matters are the specificities of the senses, vivid colors, the smell of that flower you loved as a child, a particular kind of horse. It's a small thing to notice, perhaps, but I couldn't stop logging the way these poems were filled with textiles, textures. These poems are filled with feeling. You touch them they touch you. The work is at core about mortality. As she writes in one poem, quote, her single subject, the idea that every single thing she loves will, perhaps tomorrow, die. But they're also about animal rights, human rights. Her poems on capital punishment, for example, are some of the most lyrical and moving poems I've ever read. Above all, these are poems of deep elegy, and deep empathy. Brock Broido's work has been described as otherworldly, and it's an apt description. This other world is one we are lucky to get the journey to through her work and with her tonight. So please join me in welcoming the luminous Lucy Brock Broido. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me here. I've um, come this far in my life, and I've never been to Seattle. And it's a place I've dreamed about all my life. It is, its weather is my weather. 
Um, and uh, I want to thank Ruth Dickey and Rebecca Hoogs and the Seattle Arts and Lectures um, organization for making this possible for me to come these million miles from um, the Moors where I live in the East. Uh, and I'm just very honored to be here and to read with an asparagus. <laughs> my first, my only. I think that was a self-portrait, so I think. Um, I'm going to start with a poem called Lucid Interval. And I thought I was going to write a series of these poems, um, each very petite, and each um, about this odd experience of lucidity that one um, experiences um, after a head injury. Uh, when, and to me, uh, abstracted, uh, difficult, painful poetry is a slight head injury, I think. So I thought being accused as often as I have of not having enough clarity I strive for clarity. I, I am trying. <laughs> I will always try. Uh, so I thought I would write these lucid intervals. Um, this started out being eight pages long. And um, as I was saying to my class last night, I believe um, that um, a poem must practice violent concision and must be the marriage between hysteria and haiku. So of the eight pages, we have eight lines left. So it's sweet in that it's short. Um, also, uh, I know that many of you were here when Timothy Donnelly read or gave his lecture several weeks ago here. And um, he's part of this poem because many years ago he was my student and I had published my second book, and he came up to me and he said, you've used up all the words. <laughs> and I said, don't say that, because that scares me, because I have to write, too. And then I did write another book, and then, you know, 10 years later I wrote another, and then I really did, I used them all up. Um, a student sent me one the other day, thinking, and, and I said, I, I used that on page seven. Um, so that this poem is about having used up the words. I put my students on watches, like you could be on a dark watch or a shard watch or an owl watch. Um, I'm on a velvet watch. I'm on a milk bucket watch. I'm on a wolf watch. Um, but I do have a couple tricks left up my sleeve. Um, some articles, um, punctuation, <laughs> conjunctions. Um, two final things about this poem. Uh, some of the triggers for this poem are anorexia, um, shopping in an autumnal sale at Target for a plaid coat, the novel The English Patient, and Romeo and Juliet. And these three lines from Brodsky's Roman Elegies. The more invisible 
something is, the more certain it has been around and the more obviously it is there. Lucid interval. Tread very gingerly. You've used up almost all the words. Heavy worry about growing small again, but this time accidentally. Don't be so fanciful. If you'd add those mustard family vegetables to the pot roast, it would feed so many more. Shepherds are still tender in a time of war. New lovers plagiarize, say awkward things, and yearn. My heart's desire would be only to desire, but not to grasp. And not by yonder blessed celestial anything, I swear. Um, this poem is called Infinite Riches in the Smallest Room, and it has, um, it's my definition of a poem, uh, it's also Shakespeare's, uh, and um, some little backstories to this poem. Uh, it was the first, there is a gentleman in the audience who said, I read a while back a poem of yours in the New Yorker, and so I thought I'd come. And this was the per first poem I, I thought that I ever published um, in the New Yorker, and um, by then I had a, a on-the-page relationship with its editor Paul Muldoon, and he took this poem, and it's the first poem in my book, and I was so excited. And we went back and forth for six weeks on titles. He didn't like my title. How can you not like infinite riches in the smallest room? And a lot of my friends said, well, you should just be a diva and say, if you don't want my poem the way it is, you can't have it. And I wasn't going to say that. I said, well, what do you, let's, what do we call it? Let's, let's think some stuff up. And we went back and forth to six or eight tiles, uh, titles um, and settled um, happily on the word noctuary, which is a word I love. It's a journal of things written at night. But for the book, it's back in its normal, in its normal phase. There's several spiders in here, um, especially recluse spiders, um, and people who are sometimes, who hide themselves as well. And um, in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a practice, as many of you know, of identifying certain groups by a code of patches on people's clothing um, for the highly elevated and uh, for those who provoked instant disdain, the pariahs. The physician wore a purple robe, the leper wore a particular hat in a certain shape, the harlot, a particular kind of scarlet dress, the heretic, a double cross, and the Jew, a gray patch of wool on his tunic. Um, and that, uh, my Ashkenazi background 
is at one of the little centers of this poem. You will hear that. And finally, the one other gloss here is to speak of um, something I'm sure many of you know about uh, called locked-in syndrome, made um, world-renowned uh, by the novel and film uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, when um, everything is right there in your mind. You know everything. You think everything. You feel everything, but you cannot say it. And um, the way that book was written was um, a chart of the alphabet was made up and Dominique uh, Bobet, I think his name is, I might be saying it wrong right now, uh, but he learned to blink one eye and wrote a book through the blinking of an eye, which I think is an extraordinary metaphor for how you write a book that carefully. Infinite riches in the smallest room. Silk spool of the recluse as she convex her eventual mythomania. If it is written down, you can't rescind it. Spoon and pottage bowl, you are starving. Come closer now. What if I were gone and the wind still reeks of hyacinth? What then? Who will I be? A gaudy arrangement of nuclei? an apple-sized gray circle on the tunic of a Jew, preventing more bad biological accidents from breeding in? I have not bred in. Each child still has one lantern inside lit. May the mother not blow her children out. She says her hair is thinning, thin, the flower bed is black, sumptuous in emptiness. Blue-footed mushrooms line the walkway to my door. I would as soon die as serve them in a salad to the man I love. We lie down in the shape of a gondola. Venice is gorgeous cold. Three December, unspeakable anxiety about locked-in syndrome about a fourth world, I cannot presume to say. The violin spider, she has six good eyes, arranged in threes. The rims of wounds have wounds as well. Sphinx, small print, you are inscrutable. On, on the roads, blue thistles, barely visible by night, and by these, you may yet find your way home. This is called Freedom of Speech, and it's for uh, a friend of mine, Liam Rector, who was a poet and went to the Kennedy School to study First Amendment rights and uh, taught me a lot uh, about poetry and about 
freedom of speech. Um, he even got all dolled up as a Tweedy uh, professor and appeared on the O'Reilly Factor. Um, that takes some guts. Freedom of speech. If my own voice falters, tell them hubris was my way of adoring you. The hollow of the hulk of you, so feverish in life, cut open, reveals 10,000 rags of music in your thoracic cavity. The hands are received, bagged, and examination reveals no injury. Winter then, the body is cold to the touch, unplunderable, kept in its drawer of old world harrowing. Teeth in fair repair, you will be buried where? Nowhere. Your mouth a globe of gauze and glossolalia, an opening most delft of blue. Your heart was a mess. A mob of hoof prints where the skittish colts first learned to stand, catching on to their agility, a shock of freedom, wild-maned. The eyes have hazel irides, and the conjunctivae are pale with hemorrhaging. One lung smaller, congested with rose smoke, the other film with a swarm of massive sentimentia. I adore you more. I know the wingspan of your voice. Whole gorgeous flock of harriers cannot be taken down. You would like it now, this snow, this hour, your visitation here tonight, not altogether unexpected. The night laborers, immigrants all, assemble here, aching for to speaking, longing for to work. I have a little, I have a character running through this book and I hope I can get her back with me if I ever write again. Um, and her name is Dove. Uh, and this is one of the Dove's poems. Um, she's speaking when something is interrupting her. Uh, and um, the poem started actually, I took many years to write. Um, it was originally called Cow Watching a Train Go By, <laughs> which was an, um, a, uh, an expression uh, used in the New Yorker, a French idiom which was used to describe the look on George W. Bush's face at, during his debate with John Kerry, and he just was blinking. Um, and I love that, and I still want to write a poem called Cow Watching a Train Go By. <laughs> so this is my chance. Um, Hillary Clinton was in here, too. Her opaque reality. Um, things come and go in poems, and then that which has to stay has to stay. You know, how do you carve an elephant, you take away everything that's not the elephant. 
or when I was researching if that quote was apocryphal, uh, I found, how do you sculpt David? You just take out everything that doesn't look like David. That's, that's what it says online. I, I don't think Michelangelo said that. Uh, uh, one other thing about, I'm telling you stories of how this, these poems happen and then what they happen into. Um, during that time when it was called Cow Watching a Train, it started with two gay friends of mine who were married and went on their honeymoon in Paris. And they were in this hotel room, the suite. And they both took a lot of Viagra. <laughs> and they got in a big fight. <laughs> and they were really pissed off with each other, but nobody could do anything about the little sword fight they had. <laughs> so um, I wanted to write a poem about that. And that, that didn't happen either, but I got to tell you about it now. Uh, and they're here with me tonight, if you'd please stand up. No, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> um, but going through that story, I got all hot and bothered about what's the difference between the words inarguable and in, sorry, arguably and inarguably. It drives me nuts. I think they're the same. I'm pretty sure. Um, and they're both important words, but people, they fuck you up with one and they say this is inarguable and they think, well, you can't argue it. And then you say, well, arguably, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, finally, the important thing to know is there's a cameo appearance of a rabbit at the end of this poem. Um, and if there's one thing I really care about more than anything, uh, even more than poetry, um, I've got poetry, I've got civil rights, and I've got creatures, animals. Um, I'm in love with them. I think they're a higher calling. And um, that's my true donné, my, my subject. Uh, very hard to write about. And I'm always on an airplane. Um, I'm always reading student poems. I'm always marking them up and amusing myself. And the person says next to you, what do you do? And I'm sure this happened to half the people in here. You say, I'm a poet. And they say, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, really? Well, that's great. And they say, what do you write about? And I say, pets. <laughs> oh. True. This is Dove Interrupted. Don't do that when you're dead like this, I said. Arguably still are squabbling about the word inarguably. I haunt Versailles, pouring through the markets of the medieval. Mostly meat to be sold there. Mutton hungs, hung like pinkened laundry on its line, and gold, a chalice with a cure for living in it. We step over the skirt of an Elizabeth, 
red grapes, a delicacy, each peeled for us, each sheath the vestment of a miniature priest disrobed. A sister is an old world sparrow placed in a satin shoe. The weakling's saddle is worn down from just too much sad attitude. No one wants to face the opaque reality of herself. For the life of me, I was made American. You must consider this. Whatever suffering is insufferable is punishable by perishable. In Vienne, the rabbit Maurice is at home in the family cage. I ache for him, his boredom and his solitude. On suffering and animals, inarguably, they do. I miss your heart, my heart. When you get to be up here and you hear that noise after, in the, uh, after a poem, in the East anyway, it might have come, come West too, but people are starting to call it the poetry moo. Like if, you, <laughs> if, if things are going really well up here, like now, now that I got a moo, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm comfortable, I feel welcome. And, and now you'll feel, it's, it, a moo, it's, there's no higher calling. It just goes, mmm. Mmm. Um, this next poem is called Of Tukey Williams. And Rebecca said I had a series, um, an unfinished series of poems uh, about capital punishment. I don't know if it's a series I could ever finish. Um, but this is the first one I wrote. And just for those of you, I'm sure as many of you know, Stanley Tukey Williams. Um, but he was one of the founders of the Bloods and the Crips in 70s in South Central LA. And he was on death row for 24 years. Um, he was, quote, rehabilitated. Um, wrote anti-gang books um, for kids, nominated several times for Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, there was not going to be stopping any of this executing of Tukey Williams. Um, there was going to be cruel and unusual punishment. Um, and we know now, this was um, maybe in 2005, I'm, I'm not sure, but we know now how vividly oh, horrific whatever these unknown drugs are that we're using um, to kill our people. Um, and they're botched. His was botched, and um, it was written in the San Francisco Chronicle. There were many articles on it. He actually sat up during his execution and said these words, you guys doing that right? Um, he was so big, he'd been in, he was gorgeous, and he'd been lifting weights, and his arms were, they couldn't 
he, he was too strong. Uh, and um, finally, the word kite is used in here, and that's a slang word in prison for a note that goes up and down the state prison system. Of Tukey Williams, a thousand inmates' spoons for music, while the paper kite flies like a boy weed caught in wind from San Quentin to nestle in the next prison and the next. Do not do this thing, the kite said, but not that gently on the page of it. No, said the governor, not if Mr. Williams won't atone. Underground, a pen of clemency will not irritate the vellum of the night. There was a snag, the warden said, so enormous was Tuki's arm, the needle couldn't enter it, 11 minutes poking there to find the vein, 36 to put him down. Tuki was a big man, the warden said, but it's only salt that stops the heart, you know. That's simple. But if I say simple, for example, I mean that in the private gardens, of our aristocracy, the animals are haltered in or bled out broad by day, and when they take them down, the children are only very gently sad, a habit of the class they were born to. Me? I am not mean, I'm told. Only vengeful, which is a relief to me, of course. The wind is kicking up now. Lung for lung, soon I will be done for. On his last night here on earth, he took only milk. This is a poem um, whose title is its first line. It's called Dear Shadows. Um, and it comes, uh, it's triggering, was from Yeats's poem uh, in memory of Eva Gore Booth and Con Markovitz, uh, who were two sisters who lived at this uh, little castle called Lissadell in County Sligo. And he remembers them in his poem as two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. Later in that poem, he writes, Dear Shadows, now you know it all. I have to tell you something. These are very dark poems. But the trick is, I'm a really funny poet, and I'm trying to get people to understand this. The group is getting toward maybe, across America, a gross, like maybe 144 living people, all my relatives, know that I'm funny. But it, 
So I just want to warn you, this isn't funny. <laughs> um, it, it's a howl. Okay. <laughs> when I say in here in the poem, I mean in here in this room, but I also mean in this book. Dear Shadows, if it gets any darker in here, no one will ever be able to see again. Like cats with their eyes sewn shut at birth. I could barely stand to write what I just wrote just now. On the heavy walnut table, numbles for roasting on a truss of fire. The loin, a spit, an iron moving in a fit of blood. Here, sit in the lap of me and purr. Once in the imagination's feckless luck, in the excelsior of living wild, I wore a pinafore of Lindsay Woolsey cloth, knowing he was too shy to unbutton it in back. Miss Stein would never, not in this life, appear unto my vex of work. What is not ever said you can't take back. Goats slaughtered young would have made the softest gloves for him, his hands. And pronouns are not to be trifled with, possessive ones or otherwise. Mine is a gazelle, of course. I am of a fine mind to worship the visible world, the woo and pitch and sign of it. And all that would be buried in the drama of my going on. This is called Extreme Wisteria. Uh, and it's a case history. Um, and it takes place in, an in a dwelling called the Abandonarium, which is where you go when you've been jilted. You have been there. <laughs> I have seen you there. Um, once when I got bored there, I started making up other dwellings. And if any has, I, I'm trying, I want to write another, like, companion poem, but for, for the time being, um, along with the uh, Abandonarium, there's the Nicatorium, um, which are those booths they used to have only left in Detroit, where you could smoke inside a glass booth in an airport, um, and looked like guppies. and. Um, <laughs> Just go in there to inhale uh, the smoke, even if you didn't have a cigarette. Um, there's the green room, that counts as, you know, that's the green room where you go um, before a performance to fluff your hair and pay, take um, benzodiazepams. Uh, and here, uh, Rebecca put me in a gray room and um, I felt like a little monk in there taking all those drugs. Um, but, 
I'm much calmer now. Um, there is one more place I want to tell you about, and uh, there's two. There is the sanctimonium, and that's where you're carted off to when you've been unbearably self-righteous. <laughs> and finally, there is the pandemonium, which is after you've been exposed to the desperately adorable birth of newborn pandas. Which are the size of a stick of butter. So here we are in the abandonarium, and Dickinson said, when I state myself as representative of the verse, it does not mean me, but a supposed person. She meant what I meant, which is, I am a, I'm a, I'm a supposed person. Um, or, as Kathy said in Wuthering Heights, I am Heathcliff. So I do want to just tell you that I only made up one thing in this poem. It's, um, it's a confessional poem. And uh, the last thing I want to say is that I had a friend in Chicago who told me when I was first learning about extreme sports that what, there was a sport called extreme ironing. <laughs> and I said, that's just not true. <laughs> and she said, well, let me send you something in the mail. And it was, an, it was an old video. And I put it in the thing, and there were these crackpots um, who would import baskets of, have, I hope there are no um, extreme ironists in here. I, it's good for you, um, but, uh, and it takes the wrinkles out, but you take baskets of heavily wrinkled clothes um, and irons, I don't know where the electricity's from, um, and you go to radical settings. So I've seen this on the edges of cliffs, on bridges hanging, and what I love most is that the participants are called ironists. <laughs> and that's who I am. Okay. Extreme wisteria on abandon, uncalled for, but called forth. The hydrangea of her crushed each year a little more into the atter of herself. Pallid, injured, wild in ecstasy, a throat to come home to, Tupelo. Lemurs in parlors, inconsolable. Parlors of burgundy and sleigh. Unseverable fear. Case history, wistful, woke most every afternoon in the green rooms of the abandonarium. Beautiful cage, asylum inn. Reckless urge to climb celestial trellises that may or may not have been there. So few wild raspberries, they were countable and triaged out by hand. 
10,000 count Egyptian cotton sheets. Intimacy with others, sateen. Extreme hyacinth as evidence. Her single subject, the idea that every single thing she loves will, perhaps tomorrow, die. High editorial illusion of control. Early childhood, measles, scarlet fevers, Cleopatra for most masquerades, gold sandals, broken homes. Convinced Gould's late last recording of the Goldberg variations was for her. Unusual coalition of early deaths, early middle deaths as well. Believed despite all evidence in afterlife, looked hopelessly for corroborating evidence of such. Wisteria extreme. There was always the murmur, you remember, about going home. I'm going to close with two poems. And the first is, uh, quite frankly, an elegy for a pussycat. And it's called For a Snow Leopard in October. Stay, little ounce, here in fleece and leaf with me, in the evermore where swans trembled in the lake around our bed of hay and morning came each morning like a felt cloak billowing across the most pale day. It was the color of a steeple disappearing in an old Venetian sky, or of a saint tamping the grenadine of his heavy robes before the blessing of the animals. I've heard tell of men who brought great Pyrenees, a borzoi, or some pocket mice, baskets of morning doves beneath their wicker lids, a chameleon on a leash from the Prussian circuses, and from the farthest Caucasus, some tundra wolves in pairs. In a meadow I had fallen as deep in sleep as a trilobite in the red clay of the centuries. Even now, just down our winding road, I can hear the children blanketing themselves to sleep in leaves from maple trees. No bad dreams will come to them, I know, because once in the gone ago, I was a lynx as well, safe as a tiger iris in its silt on the banks of the Euphrates, as you were. Would they take you now from me, like Leonardo's sleeve disappearing in the air? And when I woke, I could not wake you, little sphinx. I could not keep you here with me. Anywhere, I could not bear to let you go. Stay here in our clouded bed of wind and timothy 
with me, lie here with me in snow. And this is the last poem. There's some things I wanted to tell you about it. Um, well, that's the most brilliant title in the history of literature because it's straight from Kafka's notebooks. And <clears throat> I've used this title maybe 20 different times over the year to make me a poem. And then I say thank you and I take it back and then it gives me another one. And I finally found the right poem, which put an end to my relationship with the title, but it found its place. Uh, some titles are portable like that. It's called, You Have Harnessed Yourself Ridiculously to This World. Tell the truth, I told me, when I couldn't speak. Sorrows a barbaric art, crude as a Viking ship, or a child who rode a spotted pony to the lake away from summer in the 1930s toward the iron lung of polio. According to the census, I am unmarried and unchurched. The woman in the field dressed only in the sun. Too far gone to halt the Arctic Caps catastrophe. Big, beautiful, blubbery white bears, each clinging to his one last hunk of ice. I am obliged now to refrain from dying for as long as it is possible. For whom left am I first? We have come to terms with ourselves, like a marmoset getting out of her great ape suit. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. If you have a question, please pass it to the front. <laughs> while Dave throws the podium from the stage. <laughs> He's clearly done, done with this. Lucy, I wonder if you would tell us about yourself as a child. You must have been a reader and a writer. Do you remember the first books that you fell in love with? This is me as a child. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's still happening. I pretend to know a lot. Um, I've only been three ages, um, all the time up till I was 16, and then I was 16, and then I was 36, and that's, that's it. So you want to know about the, the, child, the childhood? Yes, <clears throat> phase, phase, phase one. I was very haunted. Um, I grew up in a beautiful house with a beautiful family whose parents were madly in love with each other. Um, but I was haunted. Um, I have made several vows. How can I turn and speak? Can you hear me if I do that? Um, I made a few vows in my life, and um, the first was I would never cut my hair as I was after I was shorn on a, the boardwalk in Atlantic City, held down to a pixie haircut. Uh, I swore my mother would never die. I kept that going a long time, and then I couldn't vow it anymore, and I swore I'd be a poet. But that probably didn't come till I was 13. But when I was even littler, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I liked those little blue roll notebooks where you get mm -hmm. to give people checks. <laughs> um, but I was, pro I was sort of the least literary person in my family. Hmm. I, I was a little fluke. <laughs> so when did, when did literature and poetry really, really come to you then? Was it in, in phase two, age two? Um, well, sometime along the road there, starting in an eighth grade algebra class, I got that far, I walked out. I was, I was in Pittsburgh, and I literally couldn't be in that room. And I literally left the room mm -hmm. and went home to tell my parents I was going to become a poet and would not go back to school. Hmm. Um, they had a little bit of a hard time with this. <laughs> um, we got through it. Uh, I didn't really go back to school. I joined a theater troupe um, and spent a lot of time and a lot of passion in that direction. Hmm. But uh, w what prevented me from that actually was stage fright which I have now. Um, who would think that, I never knew when you were a poet that you would have to be on stage. Because when I was little, like, I don't know, two, my mother said, we're going to Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh and we're gonna see this man. You, you'll know what this means when you're older. And I'm like, <laughs> and it was W.H. Uh, Auden. Hmm. Um, so I guess I saw Auden or I heard him read. Um, but I, uh, mm, I was in a production of Miss Julie in this laboratory theater, and um, every time I would come to the microphone, what another poet calls um, baby dragons. He, I make baby dragons, like n nervous noises. I won't do one now, although I could. I could. <laughs> it's like a little dragon, and it, it, the, the production was in this church mm -hmm. and 
it was a more echoic place than this. And I thought, well, we're not going to be doing this anymore. So mm -hmm. it's just poetry. Mm -hmm. From here on out. Yeah. I, I love how much your poems love language itself. And I mean, they're a dictionary peruser's delight. I looked up so many words while reading this book. Um, how much does the love of a word drive a poem? Does it? Does it drive a poem? The poem is driving, and then it goes hunting. Hmm. And it looks for these words. And I never know how or when or where I'll find them. Um, but I'm willing to go to any cross-wired journey to find them. I, I am knuckle-wrapping of myself about being fanciful or I get very annoyed when I have to look up a word to read a poem or Google something. It's, I now allow Googling in class at Columbia. Um, and it actually helps us. We mm. learn incredible things. Mm. But um, I do want to know all the words. Um, and not all just the beautiful ones. But I, I, I would rather at this state in my life communicate and be understood. And it is just my lot that even in real life, I just can't say anything with plain spokenness. Mm. I really try. Um, and it, the, the news keeps coming back to me that it's not plain. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about the form of many of the poems in the book. Um, many of the poems, if you've seen it or looked at it, you'll know they have these long lines often separated from the next line by a space, as if each line is its own stanza, in a way. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you came to the form, or what does it mean to you as a shape for the thinking of the poem? Um, many things. Um, I am in love with that long line. I, I call them onelets. Hmm. Um, and C.D. Wright was a huge influence. Um, on me reading her work. Uh, D.A. Powell has long-legged lines. Um, and I actually had to refashion this book to be able to fit the lines um, and would not allow them to be cracked. So there was some, uh, some negotiation to be made. Every time I fall in love with something, I get addicted, and I think I, I, that's all I want from now on. Mm. So now I think that's all I want from now on. So I'm expecting to tell Knopf that my book's going to have to be this wide <laughs> next time. And I also suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder, of course. And I have my books all lined up, not by author, because I think that's very annoying, because what if you get, like, the 90th... Archie Ammons, and there's no more room in the A's. I mean, what do you do? Just move them down the block. So mine are, are organized by shape, color. There's a boy section, a girl section, <laughs> and um, a burgundy reference section, which is my favorite. I love reference books. Mm -hmm. But I really get mad at books that stick out on the shelf like that. I just want to Give them a little, it, and I'm going to be one of those soon. 
<laughs> it's coming soon. You, you talked a little bit about uh, you know, the titles of your work in the, in the Kafka poem. You know, your titles alone are you know, really works of art. Could you say more about how you go about naming your poems? I collect titles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I stop writing a book, I, I'm not in hysteric. I believe myself that I am done. And it's a good feeling. I mean, it's murderous, but it's also a good feeling to think, okay, I said what I was sent here to say or what I meant to say, and I I think you can't write a new book unless you're willing to reinvent, not willing, able to reinvent yourself. Um, So my general pattern is seven to ten years between books because I think it's rude to publish too often. And I... um, (laughs) I, thank you. <laughs> um, I want it to be, I want each book to be, um, you know, I never want to do a, a selected poems because I want, I mean, I'm being very fetishistic, but I want my books to stay with themselves. And they, they can play with each other, but not without some of their limbs. Or, or, <laughs> um, so the titles, I, I collect titles, and I often get them in the op-ed section of the New York Times. Uh, I have a passion for the New York Times. That's my highest literature. I, I will not read it online. I have to touch it. It has to be right outside my door when I wake up. And I save the op-eds and they tickle me. And I wish I, oh, I wish I could, maybe as this goes on I can, pull up a few things that just happened to me as occurring as incredible titles and they were just in someone's mm-hmm. op-ed. Mm-hmm. Well, let me follow up and ask you if you could tell us just a little bit more about you know, your writing process and also your revision process, because you mentioned you know, the length of time between your books. Is, does your revision process play into that? It's all very extreme and very spooky. Are you sure you want to hear it? <laughs> it involves, involves some ritual work and sacrifices uh, on my part. Um, I am probably the most ritualistic person I know. Uh, I stopped writing for a thousand days at least. That came because I love Anne Boleyn and Anne of the Thousand Days. So I thought I'd get, because I want to get away from the poems when I'm done with the book and go have a life. So I say a thousand days, give or take. And plus I don't have anything to say. And then the thousand days pass and I'm scared I won't write. And then I, and then it comes to be September. And September tugs on my heart but not so much as October and November do. Uh, because of global warming, I am writing one less month. It used to be autumn in September, um, but when it's autumn, I start to write, and I usually start to write, and I'm not just being kinky, I start to write on Keats's birthday, which is my favorite holiday, which is Halloween, which is October 31st, <laughs> and when the clocks are turned, back um, and 
I love to be in autumn when I'm writing the way that um, that deer are called when they're when their budding racks go what's called in velvet when they get um, and I, I actually have a poem that describes my writing process called the deer hunting and that is what my season of writing is is roughly um, though I am the last person in the world who would hunt a deer but I did grow up in deer hunting country I noticed, um, well, actually, you know, could you tell us a little bit, do you, you mentioned doing research for your poems, and could you tell us more about that? You know, is that always an integral part of your work? Do you start from the research, or do you go to research mid-poem? When do you know that you need to go out and find some material? Um, that's a good... It, it would be before. I have the names of things before I write them, and I have not the subjects, but I know what's going to provoke me. And that often does take uh, some research. I'm trying to think of some, oh, a recent thing I was reading in the Times about Abraham Lincoln only having one egg for breakfast every morning and so did on the last day of his life. So one glass of coffee and one egg. And I don't know why, but that really mm -hmm. moved me. I thought, you need more than one. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you're, t you're tall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, I'm gonna have, uh, something's gonna happen, and then, you know, there was just this anniversary, and um, I just bought a book about, uh, uh, Wilkes Booth, um, and something will come of that. Um, it won't be like an historical study, mm -hmm. it will be random and heartfelt. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or one other thing that just happened two days ago is um, there was a letter to the editor of a man saying that we should all stop trout fishing. And I, my father was a trout fisherman in Pennsylvania, and I once went trout fishing, and we didn't catch anything, and that was the whole idea anyway. But this man was going on, about, and he was a scientist, about the kind of torture that uh, fish can feel, especially in their cheeks. And so that's going to take some research, because that's going to provoke a poem. Mm -hmm. um, I thought I'd call it Trout Fishing in America, but that's about one of my favorite titles of a favorite <laughs> book that's already written. But I will call the poem that and dedicate it to Richard Brodigan. Uh, we have time for just one more question. Uh, you said in an interview that poetry is a cold art with a big heart of all heat. Can you tell us more about that idea? Um, Well, writing it is hot, and it hurts, and it doesn't make me happy. Uh, it's very uh, difficult. Uh, I believe in magical thinking, and when I was, in those years, that, that day I was 16 and then I was 36, in those years I used to write hundreds of poems a year, just 
like hundreds. And now they've become very rare. And I didn't do that on purpose. It makes things difficult. But so there's a lot of heart and heat when one comes. I can't just sit down and write because I want to write. I need to have something to write about. What's cold, though, is what I spoke about in class last night, which is my um, editorial process, which is I have raised myself up to be a fierce editor of my own work, whereas before I used to just you know, think I was dropping semi-precious jewels and why bother editing that when I could write 10 more. And you no, know, but I really, that first poem I wrote tonight was eight pages and then turned into eight lines. So I, you know, that's the Edward Scissorhands that wants to be cold as ice and mm. not to fall in love with my darlings. Mm. And so I'm, I'm rough on them. Well, thank you, Lucy. We have thank fallen you. in love with you and thank your darlings. You. So thank you so much for being here. And please join us for a book signing. That was Lucy brock Broido at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2015. This was Sal On Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal On Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal On Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Subscriptions and single tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.